Hear the word of God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Well, there's a glorious representation here of what God does for us and what God does in us in what we call regeneration, when He saves us. Uh, It's it's glorious, but it's interesting how uh, in this letter, perhaps more than any of Paul's other letters, uh, there's an apology, a, a, a defense being made of Paul's ministry to a large degree. Uh, in this letter is an extended defense of, of his ministry, but it's, it's interesting, uh, it, it intertwined with that defense, the, the gospel comes out over and over and over as Paul explains, this is what I'm about, this is what I'm doing, and Jesus shines forth in the midst of that. And Paul had to make this defense. He'd planted this church, he'd started this church, but while he was away, there came these false teachers and insinuated themselves into the life of the church somehow. And there, there it appears, were not just heresies and people who are not really part of the church, but also heirs also from within the church, but now he's addressing in particular these who are a threat, being false teachers. So much of this chapter and and the one before it is taken up with this idea of the glory of God shining in the ministry of preaching. And Paul, in the previous chapter, had, had addressed this idea, contrasting his ministry with that of Moses. Moses was a great man, a faithful man, a man who did what God called him to do. But there's more glory in the ministry of the apostles. In, in Moses' ministry, there's an exposure to God, but God is also partly veiled. In Paul's ministry, in the apostolic ministry... There is this possibility, prospect, and purpose 
of you having an encounter with the living God. And if God is ultimate reality, which he is, then there's nothing better and nothing that we need more. When I was a student, before I became a Christian, I was introduced to Eastern religions. And I I had an interest in, I studied Hinduism and Buddhism and and other Eastern religions. I took college courses, I read books and, and more. And I was fascinated by the Eastern idea of enlightenment. Uh, And what do I mean? Well, in Christianity, we believe that the ultimate or the absolute is a personal being, that God is a person whom you can know, whom you can have, as it were, a a sort of a face-to-face relationship with. But in Eastern thinking, God is not a personal being. It's more like the... uh, idea of the force in, in, in the uh, Star Wars movies, although if you look closely, you'll notice they slip a lot and, and uh, attribute a will and purposes and so forth to the force. Um, but in this Eastern idea, the, the absolute's impersonal. And more than that, underneath all the diversity that you see in the world, this is sort of, as this philosophers might say, the problem of the one and the many, underneath all the diversity, there is this idea of a unity uh, in the, that Eastern thinking. Everything is one underneath. And so, for those who want to advance spiritually, it's a matter of seeking to perceive, to understand, and somehow to be united with the ultimate, or reunited. So in, in that idea of enlightenment, getting to God is the end of a quest. The Hindus call this nirvana, and, and the uh, Buddhists in Japan call it satori. But here's a difference. Satori is the end. It's a culmination. It's the end of a quest of a life. It might be the end of the quest of several lifetimes, given the idea of reincarnation. Uh, Whereas in Christianity, our enlightenment, if I can use the same term, is the beginning. It's the beginning. It's a new beginning. It's a new creation. So, but then think again about this idea. What are they pursuing? Christianity teaches that in truth, no one really wants to know God. There is none who seeks God, as the psalmist puts it, as Paul quotes in Romans 3. No one does, really. And so this whole idea of a quest is a quest that begins with people turning their backs on God. And where can it go but downhill from there? But in Christianity, it's not that we were seeking God. I mean, Paul does speak in Acts about people sort of groping after God in a way. But it's only if if they're groping at all because God is drawing them because in truth it's God who seeks us. God who comes seeking us and who by intention from before he created intended to bring about this new beginning. Now there's one other key difference that I want to highlight uh, that that bears on our text in in contrasting Eastern spirituality and, and Christianity. And and that is, in the Eastern business of seeking, where you have practices like sitting meditation and all variety of that sort of thing, uh, the the thing that you've got to do seeking is somehow turn your mind off. 
that is exactly the opposite of how we come to know God. Because God relates to us as person to person through our minds. If you are ever enticed into Eastern meditation, or even for that matter, Roman Catholic meditation, which doesn't differ a whole lot in this respect, run. Don't get near it. We meditate, but we meditate on the Word. God deals with us through our minds with the medium of words. And that is why the minister of the gospel is so important, because he is entrusted with the glorious responsibility of communicating from God to you the Word of God. And like Paul says in this same letter, who is sufficient for these things? I'm not up to it. I don't know how to do it. It's God who brings about the sufficiency. But, and the last thought I need to introduce to complete our introduction is this, that we have opposition in this life. The church has an enemy. We call him Satan or the devil. There are other names as well. You know who I'm talking about? Uh, He is an enemy. He is a liar from the beginning. He is opposed to the truth. He hates God. He hates you. He hates the church. And he has many servants. And they seek to infiltrate the church. They have done it throughout history. They do it today. And they can be very subtle and very plausible. And sometimes the people of God are deceived by them. And so part of what Paul is saying here implicitly is that we need discernment to perceive what is truth and what is error. And so the first point then that I want to address from this point is this, that there is a difference between false preachers and true preachers. False preachers, they exist, false teachers, and true preachers. Let me reread the opening verses again. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We depend on other people for information. That is the way God made the human race. That is the way God made us. Uh, With our scientific bent, well, we're now in the post-enlightenment era. Maybe that's not so prominent as it used to be. We talk a lot about observation and uh, experimentation. But the, the fact is, we rely on authorities. When we're small, when we're children, we depend on our parents. We trust them. We believe what they tell us. As we get older, we go to school and we believe our teachers. We believe what they tell us. And yet, the the fact is, the authorities that we trust can get it wrong. They can shade the truth. And men also lie. Now, here's an example of that. Did you know that some 90% of the news media is owned by a mere six corporations Six, only six, six corporations. 
And if you delve into this, and by the way, uh, this, this is public knowledge. That you, I mean, when I did a search on it, I pulled up half a dozen different sites where I found this. I found, a, for instance, a, a good uh, graphic of it at Business Insider. Uh, but if you delve a little further into this and you look, okay, who owns these corporations, you'll find the same institutional investors are, are the top two, three, four institutional investors in all six of them. And then if you look at those institutional investors, you'll see that they're heavily invested in one another. And so what you might mistakenly think is a, is a diversity of voices that you might get between the Los Angeles Times and the Atlantic, CBS and NBC and so forth, may really be far less diverse than, and far less objective than you think because they can just as easily be representing the viewpoints of media company executives and investment firm executives. And, and the fact of the matter is there are people who seek to control you by controlling what you think. And on the other hand, it's also an evident fact, as we've seen in the last two years especially, when people try and get some truth out and put it on social media, they get censored. There are people who have, powerful people, who have an interest in suppressing the truth. And so the, the, uh, the, the thing that I'm trying to illustrate is the idea that people who communicate and represent what they're saying as objective fact and truth quite often are not giving you what they say they're giving you. And we need, to, we need discernment. We need to know which authorities we can trust. And all the more with regard to the things of God. Since the days of the apostles, the church has been plagued with deceivers. Jesus spoke of false prophets and, and false Christs. And I can't recall even a single letter in the New Testament, unless perhaps the book of Hebrews, where it doesn't warn against false teachers. They are there. Paul says in another letter, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. And in the New Testament, it was already an old problem. Jeremiah had to contend repeatedly with false prophets, and God said to Jeremiah, they are causing my people to trust in lies. Those false teachers are still with us. But Paul says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. What I want to do, continuing this point now, is to point out some of the, the characteristics that Paul identifies here just in passing. First of all, <coughs> disgraceful, underhanded ways could be rendered the hidden things of shame. And what he's saying is there are people who represent themselves and what they're saying to be one thing and what, they, what the reality is is something different. Uh, they are concealing what their true motives and what their true agenda is. Well, then there's this word cunning. The Greek word is panorgia. It literally means a readiness to do anything. There are people who will stop at nothing. There are people who will stoop to anything. And in some cases, they have wormed their way into the church. Interestingly, uh, Francois Rabelais, one of, one of Calvin's great adversaries, wrote a book called Gargantua and Panagro. It's, it's a body book, but it's hilarious. And in the book, there's a character whose name is Panurga. 
this, it's just a transliteration of this Greek word. He's a young, highly educated man, but he's also a cheat, a womanizer, a thief, a gambler, and he's always out of money. Now, in fiction, it's hilarious, but in the church, it's deadly serious. So Paul is warning as he goes, and he delays getting to this until he gets to the 11th chapter or 10th and 11th chapters of this book. But at this point already, he's already warning. Here are people who are out to seduce you. Watch out. Recognize these signs and understand to watch out. Uh, they're flatterers, uh, given what we see in these letters. In all likelihood, they're Jewish. They know the Bible somewhat. They're plausible. They've gained a following. But their lies are deadly. They are sneaky and underhanded. They twist the words of the Bible to suit their end. Now, how do we apply this? Well, for instance... Whenever you find someone who's advancing an interpretation of the Bible, of a particular text that is novel, that doesn't match up with the commentaries, on the one hand, it is true that from time to time, new light, as it were, does break forth. Uh, I don't mean new revelation, but we do come from time to time to understand something better. But if you hear something that contradicts the established truths that are enshrined in our confessions and catechisms and creeds, beware. Beware. Those things should make all sorts of red flags pop up in your mind. Now, there's another thing, and that is that these false teachers, we don't see it so much in this passage here, were attacking the apostle. They're attacking apostolic teaching, in other words. And there, too, the same red flag, where apostolic teaching is, is being challenged, where somebody, say, for instance, goes to the second chapter of 1 Timothy and says, oh, this passage doesn't forbid women preaching and women in, in the eldership. That is the understanding of the church that was here all the way into the mid-20th century. And all of a sudden, we have novel interpretations and say that's, that, that say that's all wrong. Well, and thank God he's raised up champions who've addressed those challenges. But this sort of thing happens all the time. Beware of people who creep into the church and attack the church's historic teaching as it has come down to us. But there's another thing. From time to time, people will appear in particular churches who begin in subtle ways and sometimes not so subtle to attack the leadership of the church. When you are hearing criticism from some newcomer, or for that matter, someone who's been here, of your elders, of your pastor, that should make red flags pop up. Now, our pastor and our elders have already addressed, I, I believe. Uh, what do you do in those cases? You go talk to a pastor. You go talk to an elder. You tell that person, if you don't go talk with the pastor, if you don't go talk with the elders, I sure will. You, those are red flags. Now, there's another thing, and that is you can watch people like that closely, and sometimes, at least, you're going to see a contradiction between their public life and their private lives, which is another warning. Well, 
so much for things that warn you about false teachers, but Paul has more to say here that shows the contrast between the real and the false. And so let me begin now with his first verse where he says, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Paul knew his own history. And as in First Timothy, he says that talking about how this is the faithful word and true that, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul the murderer, Paul the Pharisee, Paul the persecutor of the church knew what he was. And so here when he says by the mercy of God, he is saying I just can't get over the fact not only that he's forgiven me having the blood of his servants on my hands, he's actually given me this privilege I can't believe a minister of the gospel ought at least periodically give evidence of the fact that he realizes he is a highly privileged person to be a servant of the word. It is a glorious privilege to be doing what I'm doing right now. And it ought to be evident that we believe that. That's the first thing. But then the second thing is, Paul is straightforward. He's honest. He's above board. Uh, You may remember in the first of these Corinthian letters, he says, uh, when I came to you, I didn't come with with words of wisdom. I didn't come with rhetoric like the Greeks are so impressed with. He was straightforward. He was plain spoken. He was honest and above board. And what he was publicly, he was also privately. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul didn't twist things. He didn't flatter people. You are blessed in Pastor Stewart and in Pastor Lockhart with two men who are straightforward who are above board, who don't hide their own warts. They are open about their own weaknesses and failings. And they handle the word of God with reverence. That is a huge thing. That's a huge thing. They also will tell you things that your natural inclinations don't want to hear. They will point out things about us our various and sundry sinful habits, the things that we still struggle with, big things, mountainous things. They point those out, though there are plenty of things in the Bible that can be rather uncomfortable for us to talk about. But my dear brothers, don't shy away from doing that. They are forthright, and they are bold, and what a blessing you have in, in, in these two men. They, they are men of God. Now, those are characteristics that you should look for if and when the Lord ever calls a, a, another person here to be on staff or if and when the time comes and you and I are still here when Pastor Stewart retires or whatever. These are things to think about. But now I want to point to one of the chief things in this text by which we know the truth. Paul says we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
When the gospel tells you that you have done things that you shouldn't do, or I should say rather when the law does in anticipation of the gospel, when it tells you you have failed to do what you should do and that you've done what you shouldn't do, there is something in you that says this is true. That is your conscience. And a man who is preaching the gospel faithfully will speak time and again to conscience. And there will be something, even in people who reject the message, there is conscience that tells them, though they don't want to hear, though they suppress that, it tells them this is true. There is the ring of truth in faithful preaching. False preaching can be eloquent. False preaching can have a plausibility, a show of reasoning and all that, but it does not speak to conscience. The ministers of the Great Awakening in this country back in the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards in particular, noticed this, noticed that in contrast to the the false preaching of the Unitarians that was already getting started back in that day, even the preaching of, of Arminians did not address the conscience like this and consequently conversions were scant or non-existent in those settings. But where the gospel is faithfully preached, it will smite the conscience and there will be people who hear it when God says, you are the man or woman. Well, so much for the uh, contrast between true and false preachers. What I want to move on to next is that evidently one of the things that Paul was, was challenged with was the question, why is it, if what you're saying is true, why is it so many don't believe it? Why do so many people reject this message? Well, Paul has an answer here. Reading now in our text from the third verse, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Now, in speaking of this contrast and and speaking of a veil, Paul's looking back at the previous chapter, which looks back to that time in the Exodus when Moses and Israel were at Mount Sinai, and Moses was going up on the mountain to get the the words of the law of of the covenant, and coming down from the mountain, and then relating what he'd heard from God to the people. And as he did that, he would go up and and spend time with God and come down the mountain, and some of the glory of God somehow rubbed off on Moses. And so his face glowed with this glory of God. And Moses, after he'd finished communicating what God had given him, would put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel could no longer look at that glory. Paul here sees this as a metaphor for the state of of the hearts of those Israelites. They didn't really want to know God. They didn't really want to draw near to God. They liked the idea of having God protecting them and watching out for them and providing for them, but they didn't want intimacy with God. They wanted God to stay at a distance. Uh, We're told after the Ten Commandments were given, they said to Moses, please don't let him speak to us again like that or we'll die. And at the time, God approved of it, but he also saw what was behind it. So 
Paul sees this here, not just as a picture of the state of their hearts, but of the state of your heart and my heart in their natural condition. We don't want God any closer naturally. We don't want to know God. We would like to unknow what we already know of God. Paul says that we suppress the knowledge of God. We suppress the truth that we already know about God. We don't want to hear. And when God draws near to you and shows you things about yourself that you don't want to know, the natural response is to stop up your ears. But the gospel, the gospel tells us things about ourselves, doesn't it? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside, each has gone to his own way. And other things like that. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, Jeremiah put it. That's the veil. That's the fallen condition of the human heart. Jesus said they would not come to the light because their deeds were evil. And the coming of Christ into the world in John's gospel in the prologue is represented as light coming in to darkness and shining. By nature, we don't want to know the truth. But you need to hear this. I need to hear this. There may well be people here this evening who are hearing it. You've heard it before, but you've never really listened. And I plead with you, listen, listen now. Because there is a warning in what Paul has to say here. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. These words, those who are perishing... Paul has already used before. He says the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing in his first letter. And what he means is human pride and human stubbornness and obstinacy of heart is such that we reject the gospel out of hand. But why does he say perishing? What he means is people who stubbornly reject the gospel and go on do it, go on doing it are hell-bound, are on their way to destruction. That's what this word means, destruction, on the way to hell. And it's even more serious than that. In verse 4 of this chapter, he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Pastor Seward often says this, that it's not that there's a lack of evidence for what we teach and what we believe. There's a mountain of evidence. It's the state of human hearts that causes people to reject this. That's the veil. But it's, it's something that's more serious than that because there's another agency who has an interest in keeping us in darkness, and that is the devil. Paul says in another place that we all were walking after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air. We were by nature children of wrath, sons of disobedience. So that's where we are naturally. If you have not responded to this message, don't suppose that you can turn around just any time you choose, that you can sow your wild oats while you're young, for instance, and later on in life when you're sobered and uh, think it's time to do this, you can finally turn back to God. You cannot suppose 
You should not suppose that you can do that. Those who are perishing. When Paul speaks of it here, he's really hinting at the idea of what we call judicial hardening. There comes a point. There comes a point where it is too late. Where, as in the picture of the parable of the sower, where the birds come and pluck up the word that was uh, lying there on the path. Where the devil comes and takes the word away from you. Where you no longer think of these things. Where you no longer remember what you've heard. Where the scriptures that you once knew are no longer there in your mind. No longer even available. Where your desire that you might occasionally have had. Where your thoughts that you might occasionally have had. That you needed to do something about this. You needed to turn back to God. Those things all go. Those who are perishing. If you think that you might be or be on the way to being in that category. Please don't continue. Plead with God to soften the hardness of your hearts. Don't keep pushing the gospel message away. Well, now we come to the good news, the the glorious news. And and this third point, our second point having been why some reject, the glory that shines and turns on the lights. Think again with me about words I've already read where Paul speaks of Satan keeping people from seeing. What is it he keeps them from seeing? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The the light is real. It's a real thing and there is real seeing to be done. And what we see is the glory of Christ. Why? Think of Peter and James and John going up on the mountain with Jesus in the transfiguration, they were shown something. It was as though the light of the sun was coming out of the person of Jesus. They didn't understand this really until after the resurrection. But then they came to realize we saw we were with God in the flesh. Jesus said to them in the Last Supper, He who has seen me has seen the Father. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. It's all over the New Testament. Christ is truly human, but he's also God. He's truly human because at a point in time, God came down and joined himself to our humanity to be our Redeemer, to do in his humanity For us, what we could not do for ourselves, which was to live a life of moral perfection, a life that was truly and fully, absolutely and perfectly acceptable to God, and then to do what we also could not do without it being infinite, which is to bear the penalty for sin, which he did in his sufferings on the cross, bearing an infinite punishment for all who would believe. This is God coming to deliver us from the wrath of whom? Of God. He is the image of God. He shows us what God is really like. We have the doctrine of God from the Old Testament, by the way. (coughs) You know, what is God? God is 
a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchanging, and his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and truth. We knew that already, but now we see something else. We see that God is rich in mercy to the extent that he's willing to come down and be damned, be made sin to redeem you and me. Well, let's move further into the text. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is the difference between two people who sit together or separately in the same worship service and hear the same sermon, the same presentation of the gospel, and one believes and one doesn't? The difference, ultimately, is this God shining in the heart of the one, but not the other. How does this happen? It happens by the ministry of the Spirit, of which Paul had spoken in the previous chapter. It happens when the Spirit draws near. It happens when the Spirit comes to that person and convinces him that these things are true. And he does that, not just from the outside, but moving in, taking up residence in the heart of a person, softening, transforming, changing, giving them a new heart. That's what he's doing. And so what had been repugnant, offensive, and and whatnot before in the gospel message, now all of a sudden that person sees the sweetness of it, sees and hears the mercy of God in these words that are being communicated and believes them. Now, notice he said, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. There's an allusion to creation there because when God does this, you're made a new creature. You're a part of God's new creation. Regeneration makes you new. And all things are new. And all things are from God. Now, let me draw your attention to another thing. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This light is a knowing. It's a knowing that comes from God. No one has this knowledge except that God has given it. God has imparted it. Now, notice that Paul's use of this word face. You may recall in the Old Testament Aaron's benediction. The benediction that God gave Aaron. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. There is something of that idea here. When the face of God is towards you. When the countenance of God is lifted up. When his smile is upon you. He is propitious to use a big word. He is favoring you. He is smiling upon you. He is bestowing love on you. And we see that in Jesus in a way that it could never have been seen before his coming into the world. That God's love for you is so great that he's given you his own, his only son. There is no greater love. And we see this in Christ. We see the, the sweetness, the beauty, the excellence of God and the things of God in Christ. 
And the lights come on. And you understand for the first time. And it's all new. (coughs) Excuse me. So let me ask, have you seen? Have you tasted? Hopefully, you go on tasting. Like Paul says, we are being transformed as we continue looking. Now that brings me back to where I started. Paul says, we do not proclaim ourselves. This is a seeing that comes to you through your mind, through the word of God communicated to you, through the apostolic preaching and down the ages since then, through the faithful ministry of the word from the pulpit. God entrusts a minister with this message about his son. And when the message is preached faithfully, great things happen. God actually is pleased to visit you, to shine in your mind and heart in your life, to start changing you into the image of His Son. There are times in life when we get a glimpse of something that's or in some cases, a listen to something that's truly sublime. It it might be a part of Handel's Messiah. It might be a a vision of a sunset. I I still remember some 20-plus years ago when we were living in Idaho, and we were going across a mountain pass from the little town of Loman over to the town of Stanley, and there was a place on the way there where it sort of opened up to the right, and you could see miles and miles and, and get, see the majesty of the beautiful Sawtooth Mountains. That was sublime. Well, Paul starts out the next section of this chapter saying, We have this treasure in jars of clay. This is treasure. It is the sublime. May God give us grace to love and treasure it more than we have. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray work in us that we see by your spirit making us see, hear by your spirit making us hear, and delight with that delight which we ought to have and yet It comes also from you in our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen.